Hey, I'm Joshua, one of the pastors at Clearview Community Church, and I'm here to talk to you about Jesus, someone who I think is utterly incredible and worth following with all of our being. It's great. Uh, I get fired up about this, what we're doing today, because it's pretty incredible. We, you and I, the people who call themselves followers of Jesus, have given up sleeping in on what is probably our day off, or we've given up the good table at brunch to be here, to do something we do regularly, to gather around the person, Jesus. This is incredible to me for a number of reasons, one being that we're not the only ones doing this. One third of the entire globe, 2.4 billion people are doing this too, identifying as a follower of Jesus and gathering to celebrate in his name. That's amazing to think about, that we are joined together in a truly global movement, the most ethnically diverse religious movement in the world, transcending over and above and across continents, cultures, languages, and time sharing in a living heritage called the church. Have you ever been to a church in a different country? The times I've attended a church in a different country has been some of my favorite experiences. Even though there were language barriers and cultural differences, there was a sense of a profound connection to strangers. You can look at the face of another worshiper in the room, point to them, and say with real meaning and conviction, father, mother, sister, brother. Strangers, yes, but whose lives are centered on the person of Jesus. I felt it then. And I feel it this morning that because of the work and teaching of Jesus, we can experience the profound reality of family. Today, I want to present to you one of Jesus' most radical teachings, family. So let's read together in our passage from Luke chapter 8, 19 to 21. It says, Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. Jesus replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Early in the gospel writings, we are met with a major theme of the Bible. It is the theme of community and family. This theme is also found, I'd argue, on page one of the Bible. In Genesis chapter one, we can glean pieces of the puzzle about this incredible story about God. Who is God? We learn that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God in three persons that we call the Trinity. And we find evidences of this Trinitarian God in the very beginning, in the creation narrative. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God creates, and when he creates, it's out of the Trinitarian community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Now, what does God create? Well, he creates a family, Adam and Eve, a community in an ecosystem of which God was intimately a part of. It was a world where humans cultivated life. There was blessing, abundance, creation, wisdom, walking in the garden with God as objects of his overflowing love. And when Adam and Eve fail, God stays committed to this family promising in Genesis 3.15 that God will raise up someone from this family, from the children of Eve, to crush the snake that brought evil and brokenness to the world. Forward to Jesus. 
coming from the lineage and family of King David, of Abraham and Sarah, of Adam and Eve, and being born into a family with Mary and Joseph, Jesus comes declaring the good news of the kingdom of God. Some scholars note that every time you read the words kingdom of God in the gospels, you can insert the community of God. Whenever Jesus mentions the kingdom, we can trust that in the scope of all its meaning includes the community of God. And Jesus has a lot to say about the kingdom of God. It is central to many of his teachings, including some of his most famous, like the Sermon on the Mount. So what kind of kingdom or community is the one Jesus announcing? For Jesus, the dominant idea and framework for what kind of community this is and what we are is that of family. For context, in this ancient setting, family was patrilineal, meaning what consisted of a family was defined by the father's bloodline, not by marriage. That's a big leap from how we view family today in the West. When we get married today, it's leave and cleave. A new family unit is formed and our loyalties change from our parents to our spouse, despite how your in-laws may feel about that. But it wasn't so in this ancient Mediterranean culture. According to author and pastor John Mark Homer, the purpose of marriage was for the betterment of your people group, not for your personal benefit or even happiness. Many times marriage was meant to help leverage your current family's economic situation. In the ancient Mediterranean, your closest loyalty bond was family and not your spouse. You were more likely to be loyal to your siblings over your spouse. It is in this context, Jesus says the words, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Jesus uses the language of the most important relationship paradigm of his day, and he redefines them. This was radical. <laughs> it would have been a pin drop in the room kind of a moment. In a time when the oldest living male, Jesus, uh, of the family was responsible before God and his village for his mother and siblings, Jesus puts his disciples ahead of his patrilineal family. It's absolutely unthinkable. But Jesus redefines family as whoever does God's will. And he opens the entry requirements from bloodline to not only Jews, but now to Gentiles, to anybody. Jesus has really hard sayings about patrilineal loyalties and is essentially asking his followers to change their loyalties from their blood family to join his new one. It's as much of a radical call then as it is for us now. Matthew 19 verse 29 reveals the expectations of Jesus in this new family. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife and children or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now, let me be clear just in case it's not implied. I don't believe for a second that Jesus calls us to abandon our families. Where there is a definite call to transition our loyalties to the community of God, the call to honor father and mother is still a commandment Jesus would teach and he himself obeyed. Remember the interaction between his mother and disciple when Jesus hung on the cross. To Mary, he said, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, he said, here is your mother. And the scriptures tell us that from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Even in our Lord's dying breaths, Jesus is found looking after his own mother. 
Showing Christian love to your family of origin is evidence of your belonging to the family of God. Our loyalties change, yes, but our love for others should only grow. Where some communities center on common interests, think of CrossFit or dog parks, <laughs> the community of God centers on a person, and that's Jesus. Essentially, what connects you and I to the most ethnically diverse religious movement in the world isn't a political persuasion, a tax bracket, educational background, or diet regimen. It's our allegiance to Jesus. C.S. Lewis said that the root of all friendship is you too. Friendship starts with what people share in common, and the common denominator for us is Jesus, and may it always be so. When Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, it's a call to community centered on him. Let's consider carefully who Jesus called to what would essentially be his community, the disciples. In the book of Matthew, we have a list of the names of the 12, and among them is Matthew, the tax collector, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the betrayer. Uh, this is the time we say, really, Jesus? That's an, odd, that's, a, that's an odd group. That's a dangerous group. If you were to ask me to put together a dream team to change the world, I, uh, I might have chosen differently. Uh, Jesus, I think we, you lost the draft pick on this one. <laughs> you see, the Zealots were a right-wing Jewish insurgency group that conducted guerrilla-type terrorist activity in their quest for Israeli independence from Rome. Cue Simon the Zealot. The tax collectors were on the payroll of Rome. <laughs> they were seen as the social scum of the earth, marked as outcasts and traitors to their own people. That's Matthew. Jesus calls these two together. Can you imagine what morning coffee was like? The call to live in this community centered on Jesus, the Bible teaches, is to live on a whole other set of relational dynamics than the world. Jesus calls people who are on opposite ends of a political, economic, racial, and value spectrum to come together, to share meals, get in the same room, and build the kingdom of God together. It's obvious that Jesus was less concerned about their maturity and more on their commitment to him. Commitment to Jesus was the requirement that brought them to conformity, the place where Jesus could mold their hearts, conforming them to the character and person of himself, a person of love. Community then is less about chemistry. It's all about commitment. Are we committed to Jesus today? Do we trust what he says about how we will become like him and how we will become fully devoted followers? Becoming like Jesus is not optional for followers of Jesus. It is everything for which we exist. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. It is so easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects. Education, building, missions, holding services. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, the clergy, missions, sermon, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. 1 John 2, 5-6 says, This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. We must become like Jesus and live how he lived. And Jesus lived in community. The Sermon on the Mount is another radical teaching of Jesus. At a street level, it's what the world is most familiar with about Jesus other than the cross. 
If you were to ask the common person what they know about Jesus' teachings, chances are they'd recall something out of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a particular reason that the world at large has a massive respect for the person of Jesus. What's understood about Jesus from most people is his teachings around loving other people. People, by and large, accept those teachings. Many of our culture's criticisms of Christianity are not directed at the teachings of Jesus or Jesus himself, but rather towards the Christians who do not uphold them. It is in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount that we learn what this kingdom of God is all about. The sermon starts this way, with Jesus speaking to a large group of broken people. These people are sick. They're ill. They're demon-possessed. They are oppressed, poor, hurting, and they're people from all over the region. And it is to these people Jesus says these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. While a lot of what's mentioned in the Beatitudes are beautiful things to adopt, being meek seems like a very Christian thing to do and be. I just don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is making declarations about reality. You see, the word blessed here, according to scholars like Tim Mackey and Dallas Willard, they're actually better translated, congratulations. It's like something you'd say to someone at a birthday party to celebrate them. Too often, these characteristics of the blessings here have in Christian history been turned into ideals or virtues that we must strive to attain. When we do that, we turn them into formulas that help us gain status and favor with God, which is, of course, precisely the opposite of what Jesus is trying to say. Rather, they are descriptions of the kinds of people to whom Jesus, in fact, first brought the kingdom of God. Nowhere does Jesus tell us we should try to be poor in spirit or mourn all the time or to try to get yourself persecuted. He simply announces the great surprise that these people who are not significant or honored in their society, they are precisely the ones who have received the honor to be first among those to be called God's kingdom. The cultural climate at that time, both in Jewish and Gentile worlds, held that if you were affluent, biologically fertile, in a position of power or not sick, it meant that you were on good terms with the God of the universe, that you were blessed. Welcome to the upside down reality of the kingdom of Jesus. Those whom God considers blessed is very different than who the world considers blessed. The blessed are those who belong to the kingdom. And who does the kingdom of God belong to? Jesus says it belongs to people just like you and I. Who are the people our society ignores, excludes, forgets, tramples on? The kingdom of God belongs to them. They belong to the community. What's your beatitude? Jesus' proclamation of the good news of the kingdom. It's an assault on the reality the way we are experiencing it. Who belongs to the kingdom? Who belongs to this family? Look beside you. Look to the political left, the right. Look to the broken, the sick, the ill. Seems like they're cursed. 
Look to the region. Look to the sea of people in our area. I can't wait till they come. Jesus died for them too. And he says the kingdom is near. The kingdom of God has happened to the world. And it is happening to the world. And it's on its way to restore the world. What are the requirements for this new community? Very simple. Humble yourself and follow Jesus. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis said, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. People created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. People and the object of God's love. They belong to the kingdom. One of my mentors recently passed, and he would say this often enough in our talks or conversations for it to stick with me. And he said these words, people are precious. What if we stopped being afraid of strangers and saw people the way Jesus saw his 12 or saw the broken? What if we saw people we were at odds with this way? Are we mature enough to allow people to belong before they believe? Are we mature enough to allow Judas in our small group, even though we're not quite sure which way they'll lean? Can we give people room enough to come broken, oppressed, and still have the charity, maturity, and conviction to say to them, blessed, congrats, you belong. 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus said the words, I am the light of the world. 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus also said these words, you are the light of the world. We don't claim to shed light the way Jesus has. Only Jesus can save. But God throughout history, from the very beginning, has partnered with families to bring redemption to the whole world. And now Jesus has installed a new kind of family and it too has mission. And don't we know that the world needs light? In his book, Reappearing Church, Mark Sayers, a cultural commentator, notes history's patterns of renewal or revival. I'm grossly summarizing, but he says elements for spiritual renewal include one, God, makes sense, <laughs> God's power, his timing, and his leading. Two, leaders with conviction and vision who are inserted in the culture as a non-anxious presence. Side note, there is no greater advertisement for atheism than an angry, fearful Christian. We are the people of God, of Jehovah Shalom, not of angst or of worry. The church needs leaders who believe Jesus when he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The fight is over. The winner has been decided. Cease striving, trust in God. And three, dedicated small groups, hungry people that have holy discontent with the way things are. Are you discontent? That's a good start. The New Testament has over 50 commands about how to live in community. This tells us at least two things. One, the Bible assumes Jesus' followers are in community. And two, they assume it's messy. <laughs> Jesus has chosen his newly formed family as the school of love that is meant to touch the world. Jesus famously said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. My hope today is to spark hope in the way Jesus has selected for reaching the world, namely family. Family is the heart of God. Community is the essence of God. God is love, and love cannot exist in isolation. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, creating you and I in his own image as objects of his overflowing love. God hates injustice towards strangers, refugees, orphans, and widows. God loves to put the lonely in families. God brings people in. God restores relationships. God is our friend. 
Here at Clearview, our vision is this. We exist to see people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. We believe that an essential component of becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus is involvement in community. Christianity is constitutively communal. We're called to follow Jesus individually and in community because how we relate to one another is as important as how we relate to God, as Jesus taught us in Matthew 22, 36-40. Community is God's school of love, where we become spiritually formed, learning to become more like Jesus as we worship, fellowship, serve each other, and serve our world. All things we cannot do alone. This is why we are excited to announce that we are putting fresh energies into organizing structures, training leaders, and inspiring people to be part of small groups at Clearview through what we are calling Clearview Communities. Clearview Communities are small groups that create spaces for people to intentionally share their lives with others, grow spiritually, and encourage each other through the highs and lows of life. They're groups that gather anywhere people love to connect, like homes, campuses, coffee shops, and online. Today, we would like to personally invite you to either lead or join a small group where you and others can grow in relationship to God, each other, and our community. Here's how to join a group. If you're looking to join a small group, here are two ways you can do that today. First, you can head to our website, clearviewcommunity.church, and scroll down to find your community and click join a community. Here, you'll find Clearview Communities, which are our traditional small groups. You'll also find our seasonal programs like Alpha, Cleansing Stream, and Financial Peace. And in the future, you'll find other categories like interest-based groups. By clicking one of these and setting the filters, you can find a group that's right for you in your season of life and stage of discipleship. You can even click a map to show you which groups are meeting near you. The other way you can sign up is by heading to our Connection Center today. There you can find helpful instructions and even a sign-up sheet to have someone contact you about joining or starting a small group. Are you looking to start a small group? To start a group, you can head to that same spot on our website, find your community, and click Start a Community and fill out that quick form. As part of the process, we'll invite you to our leadership training seminars where we'll help you become equipped and confident to facilitate a small group. To further the partnership, we'll also get you signed up to become a voting member of our church if you're not already. This will be a necessary step in becoming a group leader and will be further explained at our training sessions. Friends, if you haven't heard it before, hear it today. You are a gift to our community and we are gifts to one another. So let's share our beautiful and imperfect gifts with each other as we gather around Jesus the Christ, our Lord and Savior. When you head to that website, you'll probably notice that there's a small number of groups available to join. Part of the reason for that is that we have many groups that are already full and serving over 250 people. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. <laughs> in order to serve the other hundreds of people across our campuses, we will need more group leaders, people who are interested in the opportunity that is before us. You see, loneliness is one of the greatest epidemics of our time. Doctors say it is the most common pathology they face. Stats show that the lonely are not just sadder, they are unhealthier and even die younger. 
In 2018, under Prime Minister Theresa May, the UK installed a loneliness minister. Friends, this is a pandemic and it's a dark world. Can the church shine brightly in this dark world? The answer is emphatically yes. If we have the courage to say yes to Jesus' vision of community, we can answer the great need of the Canadian West. Radical, generous, ordinary hospitality can change Canada. You might not have control of much of anything, but you do have control over your own dinner table. And it's the exact place Jesus loves to show up. You may say today that you lack the confidence to lead, facilitate, or host a small group. The question I have for you today is, but are you called? God will equip those He calls, and He is in the business of helping us become confident in Him, and so is your church. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen today. Please prayerfully consider what your next step is, and may God meet with you and bless you as you hear His voice and obey.